roughly. Things turned out rather well. We're richer, happier, uh, and clappier than ever before. Um, and the question I try to answer in my book is, should we feel all that reassured if the future of automation mirrors the past? Um, and I start up with one example uh, of an occupation that did vanish about a century ago, uh, and that is the job of the lamplighter. Now, nobody would dispute that electricity was a great invention, right? It made cities brighter, less polluted, it makes fa factories more comfortable, and it entered people's homes and uh, uh, even made people's living room uh, less polluted. Uh, but was it great for uh, the lamplighters? Well, that occupation had existed for roughly 400 years. Uh, the lamplighter had become a neighborhood institution alongside the local police officer and the postman. Uh, and it allowed uh, an adult to uh, support himself um, and his family. Um, and it's perhaps not that um, um, crazy uh, to think that some of these lamplighters have actually resisted these technologies. And actually, in fact, here in Brussels, lamplighters took the streets, um, smashed electric lamps, uh, the situation escalated, the police was sent out, it ended with the lamplighters raiding police headquarters and the army had to be sent in to resolve the situation. Um, and if we take a sort of very long run of a view of history, it's easy to ridicule people uh, like the lamplighters of being backward and Luddite, because before mechanization took off, we were much poorer than we are now. People in Britain are roughly 30 times richer today, adjusted for uh, inflation than before the mechanized factory spread and machines were for the first time implemented in production um, on mass scale. And, and if you only look at incomes, that of course, if anything, understates the transformation that has taken place because the consumer basket you have access to today due to mass-produced goods um, is so different from the consumer basket that the Luddites or people during the first industrial revolution uh, had access to. And a lot of these things are not even counted uh, in the GDP statistics. So if you think of something like anesthesia, uh, right, the amount that you would be willing to pay for that if you had to undergo heart surgery would probably be infinite uh, and yet it's barely uh, has made any mark in the GDP statistics. Um, and perhaps the greatest transformation has been that technology has made uh, producing those goods and services and earning those higher incomes much more comfortable as well uh, rather than working in coal mines where cave-ins and explosions were part of everyday working life and lung disease part of the work package. Most people in the West today work in air-conditioned offices. And, and that is not just you know, a, a sectoral transformation. Even if we look within occupations, uh, you see that working conditions have improved enormously. A farm laborer that would work the fields, walk the fields with nothing more than animal power in 1900 can now sit in his tractor, air-conditioned tractor, and listen to the music of his choice. Uh, so we are clearly a lot better off due to technological change today than we were, um, uh, than people could ever have imagined. Uh, but I think it's also um, insightful to go back to the first industrial revolution that laid the foundations for the modern economy we live in today and ask what did people actually think about the transformation they were going through at the time. 
And people clearly had very different uh, views on this. So uh, Benjamin Disraeli, for example, before he became Prime Minister of Britain, uh, wrote a book called Corningsby, in which one character remarks that I see cities people with machines. Certainly Manchester must be the most wonderful place of modern times. Uh, the very same year, Frederick Engels published his Conditions of the Working Class in England, which was written during a stay in precisely Manchester. Uh, and Eng Engels, needless to say, had a very different take on the matter. He argued that uh, mechanization only serves to downgrade people, puts, pres puts pressure on their wages, um, and as a result of that, could not improve the conditions um, of the working class. Um, now, Engels was clearly wrong about the long run, but it was actually reasonably on target about the period he lived through, because even as the British economy took off uh, and output expanded by 46% between 1770 and 1840, wages were stagnant and probably even falling at the lower end of the income distribution. And the data for this period is somewhat shaky, but if you look at wages, if you look at consumption, if you look at biological indicators of well-being such as height, and if you look at contemporary perceptions of industrialization, they all point in the same direction. Living standards didn't improve for uh, many decades. Um, and the secular trend during this period of time was, uh, of course, mechanization. It was the downfall of the domestic system, which was gradually replaced with the mechanized factory. Um, and artisan men, mostly, who used to be able to work in their homes and surrounded by their wife and children, all of a sudden faced competition by children uh, who actually took on many of these jobs in factories and that led to considerable pressure on uh, their wages. And economists and economic historians have puzzled uh, why to, uh, as to whether why people would have voluntarily have agreed to participate in the industrialization process if it reduced their utility. Um, and the simple answer is that they did not, right? They resisted the mechanist factory with all the means they had. They rioted against it on several occasions. They petitioned to parliament to block the introduction um, of machinery. Um, and how did the British government respond? Well, actually on several occasions by sending out the army. Um, and the army that Wellington took against the Luddites was actually larger than the army that he took uh, against Napoleon in 1808. Um, so labor repression featured quite prominently during the first industrial revolution. And I think important to, um, point to make is that this was no, by no means something that just happened in Britain. Across continental Europe, India and China, workers resisted mechanization with about every mean they have. But contrary to the British government, uh, most governments actually sided with, the, with, with angry workers rather than pioneers of industry, which may help explain why Britain was first industrialized. Now, I don't argue in the book that we're going to relive all this history uh, uh, all over again, uh, but I do think that uh, it is intuitive to think about it in the context of the transformation that we're currently going through. Because as during the first industrial revolution, uh, income inequality, is on the rise, and uh, there are, needless to say, many factors that have shaped the income distribution, uh, but one of them has clearly been uh, computerization. Um, and of course, computerization began a long time ago. The first electronic computer was invented at the University of Pennsylvania in 1947, 
but it weighed around 30 tons. It consisted of 18,000 vacuum tubes, and as a consequence of that, it had virtually no impact on the labor market whatsoever. Uh, it took the invention of the microprocessor and the spread of the personal computer to actually begin to have a real impact on uh, the labor market. Um, and for most people on this panel and in this room, uh, it has all been very good because for me, for example, I can run stati statistical analysis much more effectively on computers. I can write more articles and papers, and I can export uh, my ideas uh, to uh, the global market. But for people who specialize in routine information processing tasks or routine assembly tasks, it hasn't been as great. And if you look at prime age men in the United States with more, uh, no more than a high school degree, their wages have actually been falling uh, relatively consistently uh, since 1980s. They've picked up a little bit again in recent years, which is some good news, but the secular trend has been uh, uh, rather uh, dismal. Um, and uh, like most revolutions in technology, this revolution has not occurred uniformly across space. There are more industrial robots, for example, in uh, Michigan alone than the entire American uh, West. Um, and I think if we want to understand why people in uh, the Rust Belt states, for example, are quite dissatisfied with their uh, working life, or uh, maybe rather the absence of work in many cases, um, the industrialization driven by trade and globalization is clearly uh, part of the story. Um, and if you want to understand why three key swing states, being Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that uh, used to elect Democratic candidates every single election since 1992, all of a sudden being um, ended up being won by Trump, I think robots are part um, of the reason. And it's not hard to understand. Uh, economists tend to think that the purpose uh, of production is consumption, but that's actually not true. We know that people put a lot of meaning to their jobs. Uh, one of the most consistent findings across different periods of time and across countries is that people who work are happier than those who don't. Uh, so it seems that we attach a lot of meaning to our jobs. Now, as most of you here in Brussels will have noted, we've already seen a backlash against trade, uh, but the rise of China has already happened, right? Most people today work in non-traded sectors of the economy, um, and it seems to me quite unlikely that trade is going to have very significant disruptive effects on the labor market going forward. Uh, it seems more likely, though, that more disruption is to come from automation as the potential scope of it expands. So if you go to an Amazon Go store, for example, you won't see a single cashier. That job can't be offshored to China, but it can't be automated away. The same is true for a lot of other jobs in transportation uh, and logistic, things of truck drivers, bus drivers, um, and so um, on. Uh, now, one reason why I think that we tend to underestimate the potential scope of automation is that we tend to infer uh, the automatability of jobs on the basis of what a human does uh, in that particular job. Uh, but that's rarely how job displacement happens, right? We didn't automate away the jobs of lamplighters by building robots capable of climbing lampposts, and we didn't automate away the jobs of laundresses by building robots that would walk out uh, in the woods, chop down trees, carry piles of water and wood into the home, 
and heated up the stove and then performed the motions of hand washing. And we did that by inventing the electric washing machine. And, and in similar ways, a lot of automation in warehouses and in construction is happening by simplifying tasks, not just sort of reproducing what the human worker does. Uh, I've spoken about the 47% for most of my working life now. I'm just going to mention it briefly here, but we think that from a sort of technological capabilities point of view, a lot of jobs are exposed to automation. Uh, those are mainly in retail, um, back um, office administration uh, work, um, and transportation um, and logistics. Uh, but that doesn't mean, needless to say, that any of these jobs are going to be automated away. It means that they're susceptible to automation from a technological capabilities point of view. Um, anybody who wants to dig into this can do so. We publish a list of 702 occupations and their relative exposure to automation. Um, and you can imagine that quite a few people went through it in some detail and pointed out all those sort of you know, silly things that we found, such as fashion models uh, being automatable. Uh, it's been a pleasure over the past couple of years of showing this slide and pointing out that these models actually don't exist. They've been uh, generated by what's called generative adversarial networks. They have their own Instagram accounts. They're already being used. Now, labor substitution is, of course, only the sort of first-order effect. And if we look to history, it usually takes some time for productivity growth and that makes us richer to take off. And that is because we tend to reorganize production around new uh, technologies. So when the electric motor emerged, for example, all factory owners did early on was replacing uh, the electric motor, as a, uh, the steam engine, as the central power source with an electric motor. And it took a while to figure out that actually you can equip every single machine with its own electric motor, and then you can sequence those machines according to the natural flow of production, which gave rise to mass production, allowed Henry Ford to produce the Model T at a sufficiently low price for it to become the people's vehicle. And people benefited from this enormously, both on the production and uh, consumption side, as uh, a, a productivity growth took off but it took a long time for that to happen because of the reorganization of production. If you look at the early uh, uh, automobiles, you see that they only almost look like a horse carriage, right? So what we did was replacing the horse with an electric motor, but a lot of complementary investment was required in roads, in, in social infrastructure like traffic laws and so on for the automobile revolution to take off, and obviously a lot of new jobs were created in this process as well, in road commerce and so on. And one more minute. Three minutes, sorry. Uh, now, uh, there is um, no doubt that a lot of new jobs are going to emerge uh, in this process as well that we probably can't even conceive today. And if you were go to go back in 1900 and ask your grandparents, what do you think that your grandchildren are going to do? They would not have said that, well, my daughter is going to be a software engineer and my uh, son is going to be a, a, a yoga uh, instructor. Um, and in similar fashion, I think we're very ill-placed in sort of uh, guesstimating what the jobs of the future uh, are going to be. Uh, but I think if sort of the, the recent past is any guide, uh, what we have seen is that new jobs in technology and in financial services and in creative industries, they tend to be highly clustered. They tend to be very cognitive and hard to automate. People in those jobs tend to uh, earn relatively high wages. 
they tend to demand a lot of in-person type of services where they live, uh, which also creates jobs for people at lower wages and lower sort of skill um, levels, but it leads increasingly to the clustering of economic activity. And what you see from the 1980s onwards is a sort of very considerable shift in new job creation. You can see this if you look at new job titles emerging decade by decade, you see that they almost sort of uh, entirely uh, emerge in cities with have which have a, a very skilled population. And most of those new jobs since the 1980s are also directly linked um, to computer technology. So we tend to get this sort of clustering of economic activity um, and that obviously means that the places where old jobs are disappearing, uh, like in the Rust Belt or uh, in the industrial north in England or in the Ruhrgebiet in Germany, uh, those places are not the ones that are benefiting from these technological changes. And as a result, we see also more resentment uh, in those places. Uh, now, um, the Luddites didn't have the right to vote, and I think the uh, economist Leontief was onto something when he suggested that if horses could have joined the Democratic Party and voted, what happened on the farms might have turned out differently. They may have used their political voice to bring the spread of the tractor to uh, a halt. Now, the Luddites, as mentioned earlier, weren't sort of some irrational uh, enemies of progress. They were just not the ones who stood to benefit from mechanization, and so their opposition made sense. Um, and in the United States today, um, and also uh, actually in Europe, we do see uh, some signs of people um, blaming the machines uh, for uh, uh, their misfortunes. And I was actually quite struck to see that a Pew Research Survey, recent from 2007, suggests that the majority of people actually now would favor policies uh, to restrict the number of machines that businesses could be adopt to replace workers beyond hazardous tasks. Uh, and the key point of my book is not to suggest that we're going to live through history all over again, but it's merely in pointing out that the road to prosperity has always been bumpy. And for most of history, people have actually actively resisted new technologies. And the consequence of that in pre-industrial time was that everybody was made worse off. I think we need to think through the short-term dynamics of this quite carefully to make this transition as smooth as possible, all, uh, or everybody would you know, uh, uh, lose out if uh, 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 this transformation is resisted. So I think that was probably more than my allocated 15 minutes. I apologize for that, and that thanks for your attention. Thank you very much, Carl. That's, that's great. Uh, I think we should pass uh, straight on to the other panelists because we, we are not, we have quite a bit of time. So, Rob, the phone is yours. Great. Did you get my PowerPoint? Yes, yes, we should be putting it up now. Okay. Dropping them. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Maria and, and Bruegel, for, for having me. Um, this is going to be talking about AI, so I have to give you my commercial. If you really are into AI and you need a, a fix every day, uh, ITIF and our Center for Data Innovation are hosting an event tomorrow morning at the Press Club on AI and, Amer and Euro European manufacturing, sort of how can Europe take advantage of AI in manufacturing. So a really interesting panel with a couple of manufacturers on it. Okay, so I read Carl's book. I really encourage you to read it. Um, although probably Carl probably doesn't care if you read it. He just wants you to buy it. Is that uh, any more accurate? Uh, but you should read it and buy it. And don't buy it used, by the way. I hate it when people buy used books. Uh, always buy new. Um, 
In the last chapter of his book, which lays out sort of this kind of vision of where we should go, he uses the term, how do we address societal challenges? And I would argue this debate is a very, very simple one. It's, do you think that this is about societal challenges or do you think it's about societal opportunities? Now, be sure, it's both. But which one, if you had to pick, if I have to go through it, have everybody vote. You can only have one of those. Which one are you going to vote for? That, to me, is the central question that we're talking about here. Clearly, I vote for opportunities. Uh, Carl, I thought was interesting. Uh, he, uh, he said, uh, uh, from history, the lens of history, we're clearly better off. Uh, absolutely, 100% agree. Clearly, we're all better off from technological innovation in history. But somehow, right now, we decide, no, we don't want that anymore. Even though clearly our, our, our parents were worse off than we are, their grandparents, but no, now we're going to change completely. We're, we're going to pretend that none of that existed, and we're going to say, no, we're going to be worse off. So to me, that's the fundamental debate here. Do we want to embrace this and say it's an opportunity or not? And the reason why um, it is so central uh, to think about this as an opportunity is because Europe fundamentally needs higher living standards. So, all right, anyway, that's about us, ITF, think tank, based in DC, do work all around the world. We've written uh, or studied and written on this issue of, of automation and work for about eight or nine years now. Um, okay, that's Europe's problem right there. So if you look at that and so this is the rate of, of uh, productivity growth, 1995 to 2017, and just extrapolate that to 2043, so a long time in the future, and you get pretty much nothing. Now, if you could go up to uh, essentially where the European productivity growth rate used to be, 1980 to 1995, uh, by uh, 2043, EU GDP is going to be over 70% bigger. I should just stop right there. That's the story. And the only way you're going to get to that big blue bar is by embracing technological change and automation. So, and by the way, you have to remember, by the way, 1980 to 95, as far as I know, there weren't mass revolts on the street by workers. Because what was happening was you had, and this is exactly what happens every single time we have high productivity. You have high productivity, you have high investment, you have high wage growth, everybody's super happy. Now, that's the other reason why It'd be one thing if you just kind of said, oh, we're going to grow slowly, so what? But you cannot afford to grow slowly in Europe. Uh, the U.S. is better than you are on this, but we're still in a hard place, too. The, the retiree baby boomers, we're all going to suck up all the money. There's only three answers to that. You can tell the baby boomers, we're not giving you money. That seems like it doesn't work very well. doesn't work in the U.S., doesn't work in Europe. Um, you can tell the workers, hey, your taxes are going way up to pay for all these retirees. Yeah, good luck with that. Or you can raise productivity. You can grow the pie. Retirees can have their piece. And there's some left over for workers. So um, I'm much more skeptical about these technologies, I think, than and, and some people are. Uh, a lot of people, I don't put Carl in this camp, but I would put Eric Bernofsen in this camp. They, they tend to look at these technologies as magic. Um, just, just say anything with AI today, and, and it's like, OK, well, we're going to apply AI to X. And what does that really mean? Uh, I mean, AI is, all it is is uh, little bit digits of ones and zeros, lines of code. We're not going to get artificial general intelligence. It's not going to happen. Certainly not going to happen in the next 50 years in my view. Certainly won't happen in 25 years. AI is just this piece of code that can do some things okay, and most things it can't do at all. So um, the other component of that is, is most jobs are, if you think about most jobs, they're super hard to automate. 
super. And, and, and with the people who sort of ex exaggerate this, they'll always point to the jobs you can automate. Sure, I agree cashiers, it's a relatively simple automation, automatable job, although a lot harder than people think. But, you know, think about a, a guy or gal who installs carpets in a building. You can't automate that. It's incredibly hard to automate. Think about a trial lawyer. You're not going to automate that. And the last jobs to be automated, thank God, are think tank analysts. I mean, it is never going to be automated, so it should all be. Yeah, it should all be. All be I put the bus thing in there because Carl's talked about bus drivers. And, okay, I'm, first of all, I don't think we're going to automate buses anytime soon, like 20 years. If you look, listen to the latest sort of views from the people who are into AVs, uh, they're all now saying, well, we were way, way over-exaggerated. Having an AV that can drive in a snowstorm in a city, you're not going to do that. What, what AVs will do, by the way, the most important thing that AVs will do is they're going to reduce accidents. So if you want to look at the biggest job threat from autonomous vehicles, it's not truck drivers or cab drivers. It's auto body repair shops. We're just simply not going to have very many auto body. Well, my, some guy just ran into my wife's car driving our daughter to school because he wasn't looking, and now i got to take it into the auto body shop, and luckily they're going to pay the $1,000 to fix the side panel. Autonomous vehicles, none of that. Those jobs are going to go away. But bus drivers, just to come back to that, how many of you, if you have a kid and you put your kid on a bus, would let the kid go on a bus with no adult? It'd be like Lord of the Flies. You know, they'd just be throwing at each other. I mean, you're never going to do it. So th there will be an adult. The second thing is, we, we overestimate, the pace of change is always slower than we think. And it's not because, by the way, Carl alluded to this, which is a sort of iconic theory that everybody now buys into by Paul David, a Stanford um, historian of economic technology wrote a piece called The Machine and the Dynamo, which basically, oh, electric motors, it took them 30 years to... No, 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 that wasn't the story at all. The story with electric motors was simply this. The first electric motor was super expensive and super bad. And it took 30 years to improve electric motors. I wrote about this in my first book, uh, Long, Wave, uh, Long Ways of Innovation. It took 30 years for electric motors to get multiple speeds, different torques, better pricing. And it's the same thing where we are today. AI is not very good today, but eventually it'll get better. AVs aren't very good today. Robotics aren't very good today. Eventually they get better. The second thing is nobody in their right mind is going to throw away perfectly good equipment like you're a truck. You're not going to throw that away. If you bought one last year, if you have a car, you're not going to throw it away to buy an, an AV. These things depreciate. And then finally, lots of organizations are lagging adopters. They take forever. So... You know, it happened, but it, it takes longer. This is a study we did. Um, it's on our website where we were able to get a data set from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And they have statistics on occupational change going back to 1860. Fascinating data set. So you go through and you look at every occupation from 1860 to the present, and you do decade transformation. So how many farmers were lost in this decade and how many computer programmers created this decade? I thought this one was one of the more interesting. The elevator operators, uh, there were... I don't know who had an elevator in 1870, but there must have been one. But clearly, elevators didn't take off until you had steel skyscraper. You had to have invent or develop cheap steel and you built skyscrapers. Well, you needed elevators. And in the U.S., one of the big companies to do that was Otis. Well, Otis Elevator invented the self-service push-button elevator in 1923. So if we were having this discussion back then, we'd be saying, oh, my God, all these poor elevator operators are going to lose their job. They're going to riot. They're going to have elevator strikes. By the way, none of that ever happened. But if you look at what happened there, elevator operators kept growing until 1950. Even though we had invented the self-service elevator in 1923, 
And the Census Bureau stopped counting them uh, in 1990 because the only people with elevators were rich people in Manhattan and the U.S. Congress. Okay, so the other component here, and, I, and certainly Carl's not saying this, uh, which is, uh, but there are people who do say this in this space, that we're going to run out of jobs. We're going to have massive unemployment. There, there would just be like 40, I mean, literally people say this, 40% unemployment. The evidence is quite clear. This is a study by the uh, using World Bank um, study. I think it, sorry, it might be an ILO study, but it basically it looks at the change in productivity uh, versus the average unemployment rate. And what you find from that is you see there's almost no correlation. It just it doesn't matter. You're going to have high unemployment and low productivity, low unemployment, high. It doesn't matter. It just productivity doesn't have an effect on unemployment. It doesn't have an effect on job growth. What productivity has an effect on? is individual occupations and individuals lose and, and, and classes of individuals by occupations losing jobs. That's what we should be focused on. We're never going to run out of jobs. How many people here, by the way, if, if, if uh, we could wave a magic wand and I could double your income tomorrow, how many of you would run out of things to buy? Uh, I wouldn't. I can tell you that. Uh, I have lots of things. I'd love to buy a second home in the country. I'd love to buy a better bike. I bike to work. I'd love to have tailored clothes because I'm six foot uh, two meters and I, the clothes don't fit me. So there are a million things I would want to buy. I want to buy stuff for my family. And, and I'm, I'm an okay guy. I'm dealing okay. The average worker in America is making $60,000 a year. What's that? Uh, 70,000 euros or 60,000, whatever. It's, it's so people have lots and lots of things they're going to spend money on. The other thing I think that's more 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 important, the other way out, it's like 50, yeah, 50,000, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's a lot of money. Uh, I wouldn't want to live on that. Uh, I don't know how you, how do you live on fifty thousand euros a year if you have a family? All right, I'm sorry. Most people in America, if you ask the average person in America who makes sixty thousand dollars a year, if you ask them, are there things you would like to spend money on? They'll, they'll go down a list. Number one, I want to be able to send my kid to college. Well, in the U.S., you got to pay money for it. Uh, number two, I want retirement savings. Most Americans have no retirement savings, so okay, I put my money there. Number three, they say I, I want to go on a vacation that's not just you know going to my grandmother's house and, and then you know. Anyway, this is a different reason though. The U.S. need, or the U.S. and Europe, that we need to automate more jobs. This is a hard to read this, but this is basically the number of jobs per wage level. So zero to sixty-seven k uh, thousand. That's where most of the jobs are in the U.S. Okay. Lots and lots of bad jobs, uh, and we need to automate them. And one uh, important point also that I'm just making responsible, Carl made this point, that it takes a long time, and he said, quote, that everyone lost out in the Industrial Revolution. There are really a number of very, very good scholarly studies in the last five or ten years that looked at that, and what they find is basically this. There was virtually no productivity growth in the U.K. from 1800 to 1830, virtually none. And there are a lot of different reasons for it. Everybody assumes that we had automation, vast amounts of productivity growth, and the workers were immiserated. The reality is there was virtually no productivity growth. Once productivity started to grow around 1830, that's when you saw, at the same time, wage growth. And there's no reason that's going to be uh, any different today. Okay, so I think this is a really important issue for reducing inequality. We have way too many bad jobs in the U.S., uh, lots and lots of jobs that, when I said 60, there's lots of jobs that are paying $20,000 a year. And the evidence is pretty clear that the lower the level of skill or the lower the level of wages of occupations, the higher the, uh, the, higher the uh, opportunity for automation is. 
So I think people should be thinking about that. And the last thing I'll just say is I, I think it's not, a, it's not a given that somehow this technology is just going to, oh, magically emerge and magically every enterprise and organization in the EU will, will magically adopt it and off you go. There are many, many market failures. There are many, many issues around for government to, in my view, speed this up and make it even, even faster. And the final uh, issue around that is really, it's, again, it's not the total number of jobs. It's how do we do a better job of allowing workers to transition? You have a much easier job in that in Europe than we do because according to the commission, <coughs> there's a study that the European Commission did, it, it estimated that over 30% of, of European workers are overskilled. That number is about 14% in, in the U.S. So 30% of, of European workers are working in jobs that they have too many skills for. Now, why are they doing that? They're not stupid. They're not okay. They're doing it because there aren't enough jobs in Europe that have good, that that require more skills. And so, for somebody who has a college degree and they're working as a as a as a barista, it's going to be a lot easier for that person to move into a new job uh, as as the labor market changes. It's not to say that Europe shouldn't do more and shouldn't do better. I mean, we all we like the Scandinavian model of um, flex security, uh, sort of active labor market. Absolutely, we should do more of that. But in just in closing, what I worry about is that rather than put all of our attention there, we're going to end up slowing this progress, this process down uh, to the detriment of our of our children's uh, higher living standards. This is my favorite T-shirt, made in the USA by Robux. <laughs> Thanks very much, Rob. I, I have a few things that I would like to come back to, but, but, but Anna, why don't you give your intervention first? Thank you, Maria, and thank you for having me here. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I don't want to talk too much about automation, actually, because I think we heard a lot. And I, it's not because I don't want to talk about automation. I think that a lot of things are already happening now with AI being introduced at the workplace, first of all. And second of all, and that relates a little bit to what Rob just mentioned, it is about how to deal with both AI at work and automation in terms of policy decisions, but also in terms of business decisions. How to enable those just transitions, I tend to call them just transitions or fair transitions. Um, so with that being said, what I wanted to do here today is to li really to talk first to talk more about the quality of jobs and how to achieve it. And for me, this can go hand in hand with certain automation dynamics, but one does not preclude the other. And to us, to the Trade Union Advisory Committee, uh, to the OECD that I am representing, the job quality is the important parameter here. When we look at AI right now, right now at the workplace, we can see already trends that are changing workplaces, and you already know them. I don't need to go through them in detail, but this is about enhanced monitoring at work, about wearables, about face recognition, about other parameters that are being introduced in factories, in service logistic delivery warehouses, and so on and so forth, where a worker is being tracked. The productivity of the worker is being tracked, which is good for the business, as long as it's being done in a transparent way, the worker knows about it, and so on and so forth. Oftentimes, the worker does not know or has not been consulted on it to a trade union or other representative entity. So there it creates an issue already, and it might create, for instance, enhanced stress levels. We can see that, for instance, and this is nothing positive, I'm sorry, but we can see that at those workplaces where monitoring has become an intense issue, suicide rates have gone up. 
exponentially, and this is worrisome, to be honest. A second point is, of course, with artificial intelligence and algorithms is the issue of bias and discrimination. We, I think, all heard about it. We can see it already happening, and that's the point that I want to make today, that we can see it happening. It's not necessarily about what occupation will be completely automated, because that's a completely other discussion to have. It is about what is happening right now. And with bias and discrimination, we can see hiring decisions being automated. By doing so, there is racial profiling, there's gender profiling, and so on and so forth. That is unfortunately being introduced into the data uh, sets. Um, there is bias and discrimination in terms of wage setting, for instance, on online platforms, because they are sometimes determined through rankings, through certain movements, through speed that is being tracked, and so on and so forth. So this is an issue. Another issue, third issue, is about the physical changes to a worker when it comes to the introduction of AI systems. And by AI systems, we can refer to many different things, as I said, right? So it's not just a data set, to be honest. It can be a converged system where an AI, for instance, goes together with a robotic system. And there the questions arise about liability, about risk, about occupational health and safety of the worker, that if it is not ensured and if it is not discussed already at the design process of the system, there are already issues that we can see emerging. And it can be designed actually in a way that is conducive to the safety and the health of the worker. So we actually believe that AI can be used in a positive sense here, as long as it's about to be designed in that spirit, with that spirit in mind, as I said, right? And not just in the spirit of efficiency at the current level. And lastly, and that's what we talked about just now, it's automation, clearly is a big change already in the world of work, but more so, and these refers to the three points above, right now what we have is organizational change. And this is quite different from automation. What we have what we observe also right now, I don't know if you can see it, in several surveys, uh, one, the first one is one that uh, we have conducted on behalf uh, with our members for the European Economic and Social Committee here in Brussels a couple of years ago, where we just simply asked our members, have you been involved in any policy discussions on digital agenda agendas and industry 4.0 and so on and so forth? Most trade unions, worker representatives have not been involved from the get-go and only afterwards when formulating investment decisions, skills planning and, s and so on and so forth. Now these data, this data is three years ago and there's been positive change in that direction having said that. But this is one point. It is about the inclusive debate around the world, world of work issue. The second point is about do the people who introduce AI at the workplace consider what workers actually want? And that does not mean what workers want in, in a dream scenario. It means do they consider, for example, that according to a Gartner survey, uh, the majority of workers said, yes, we do not object the introduction of AI as long as it's helpful to us, as long as it works alongside us as in a system that we can use to our advantage. But most workers do not want AI to replace them or to be their manager and to tell them what to do and to be controlled by it. So this is important to consider. Second is another survey of the ETUC, the European Trade Union Confederation, um, says that only 23% of the European workers' representatives 
have been, had been consulted in 2018 on any type of technological introduction or data issues at the workplace, which is not a lot, 23%, for European standards, because we are not talking precisely about uh, other countries where social dialogue and workplace presentation, consultation, and information rights are weaker. In Europe, this is not a high percentage. And then finally, it's about the effects. And here, this is a survey from a German sector union, Verdi, who uh, asked nine, uh, around 1,000 um, people as to whether uh, they feel, for instance, that their work rhythm intensified. So here again, majority after the introduction of AI, so that has been specified. And the majority says that, yes, we need to work faster and more. Is that a good thing necessarily? We don't know. We also might want to think about how to change that into better working conditions, maybe less working time or higher wages to be recompensated maybe for this higher work intensity. Many, also 60%, said that they have less autonomy. They feel more control. This is not ideal if we want workers to be flexible and creative, for example. But then lastly, on the positive side, and I like to stress the positive things because I think this is where we need to go towards, to move towards, is that uh, the majority said that they are at the same time see more transparency. And there is more transparency at the workplace due to the introduction of so-called digitalized AI technology. So keeping that in mind, and this relates to both, to the quality of jobs and the competence, is about this just transition that I just referred to how to achieve it. Here, this is a study of the OECD uh, that looked into the costs of so-called safe havens. By that, they just looked at training costs and social security that can compensate for the wage loss and the time of training. They looked at it according to the skill level of people. So they looked at those people who are prone um, to, whose occupations are prone to being automated and uh, along all OECD countries, and then uh, calculated the costs of the GDP annually to actually create those safe haven, havens, a just transition for those workers. And here they come, and I won't go into detail due to time constraints, but they come up with a number from 1% to 5% of annual GDP if it was necessary to train and provide a social blanket to those workers who would need a transitional measures. Clearly, these are GDP numbers that, and public money that governments right now do not have, first of all. So there needs to be thinking about financing frameworks here. Second of all, even if that was not true and those automation numbers might be, dispu uh, might be disputable, it is also about, and that leads me to my point about just transitions, to a further thinking about what else can be done, apart from skills and training, apart from social security and social protection, which are already very highly complex issues to achieve. What else can be done in a just transition framework? This is about infrastructure investments. This is about creating job mobility in terms of investing into regions. You, ca you refer to Michigan, for example. Here you have for instance, coal industry closing down, but if a coal mine closes down, the transport industry is affected, the school industry is affected, and so on and so forth. So it's never just one industry that's being somehow either automated or, or shut down. It's always the community around. 
And that's how you need to think when, or at least how we think about just transition frameworks, about the whole financing that needs to go with it. And that might happen with BI as well at a certain point in time. And then at the same time you have, let me see that. You have all the, right now as you know at the EU level, you have the principles of the recommendation on artificial intelligence at the OECD level um, where I've participated in, you have the recommendation on, our, on trustworthy AI as well. And now at G20 of the recommendation as well. Um, here, what was important to us, I was sitting on the expert group who formulated those principles was precisely to bring these two dimensions together, to ask governments to and businesses, uh, civil society, actors, trade unions to work towards fair transitions. But also second of all, and that's the last bullet point, this is taken out of the principles, is to really look at the responsible use of AI at work and here to look at the worker safety and all the other parameters that I referred to in my first slide. So for us, this is kind of the vision about the quality jobs when it comes to AI that um, we are looking at. And here what we developed at the TUAC are the three Cs, and I then stopped there after I run through those. Three are, the three Cs are consultation, which is pretty obvious when we talk about social dialogue, collective bargaining and trade unions as such. Um, the second C is choice, and the third C is co-design. So very briefly, with consultation, it can mean a lot of things. But uh, So just to give you examples, it can be consultation precisely on an AI strategy of a government to involve workers' voices to precisely not ignore what workers actually want and are concerned by. It can be involving workers into skills councils. It can be about consulting them on their data privacy and on how their data is being treated within an AI system or data set at work. What happens to the data? What happens afterwards when data goes off board and is being repurposed somewhere else? These are all important questions and they need consultation. Now, second of all on choice, and this is a graph from uh, KPMG, about uh, how they portray HR could change in terms of not HR, how it's being done, but in terms of the HR tasks. And here you can see uh, the pink ones are the, one the tasks that could be fully automated. Now you could say some of them, certainly why not have um, data management be automated to a certain degree. But then there are other tasks in there like workforce planning where my question would be, could we use an analytic tool, obviously to optimize the planning, but doesn't there need to be still a person overseeing it to ensure that there is pr precisely no bias, no discrimination, no overload in terms of intensity of the work and so on and so forth. So what I mean by choice is precisely that a choice needs to be made, how much AI do we need? How can we use it effectively to spur productivity, but at the same time not go overboard. And finally, with uh, co-design is precisely, just to give you an example, how about if AI designers would work together with trade union occupational health and safety specialists from the get-go to discuss what needs to be inside the algorithm when it's being put into a machine-human system. What needs to be considered in that respect? Or talk to an HR professional when they 
put together algorithms for recruitment and so on and so forth. These things rarely happen for now, as far as we know. We don't know everything that is happening in the AI design industry, but this would be the point to make that you need uh, that that would really help to um, enhance job quality as such. So to end with that, we developed a checklist for our members, at least, as to what sh they should ask for which I think is also important from that side. What should they ask for uh, when they ask for information and consultation? What do they need to be aware of? But also then second of all, what should be part of social dialogue and collective bargaining with governments and business partners in terms of, for example, wage adjustments when it comes to AI if uh, we believe we are enhancing productivity and creating more welfare as such, how can we distribute it better? How can we make it trickle down to everybody precisely? I stop here, but happy to go into detail after. Thank you. Yeah, and then I can I quickly turn to Daniel then. Uh, Daniel, are you still with us? Yes, I'm still yes. Uh, listening. Thank you. So please, your comments. Yeah, so thanks a lot for the opportunity to be on this panel and thanks a lot for uh, the presentation. Um, I don't think that the ILO has an official um, view on AI and uh, labor markets, but I'm happy to share uh, some of my own thoughts, which would reflect also some discussions that are going on here at the ILO and some of the work that has been done in my department and in other departments here at the ILO. So, um, Quickly on the number of jobs, um, I don't think we should worry too much on the overall number uh, of jobs on the aggregate. So here I would agree with a lot of the arguments that uh, Robert Atkinson has brought forward. Um, I think on the aggregate level, there are other factors that are more important, uh, such as the, the wage level, uh, characteristics of the workforce, education of the workforce, uh, who's participating, uh, fiscal policies. There are a lot of other things that uh, will determine the number of jobs on, um, on the aggregate. Uh, the only way how I could see that we would end up in mass massive unemployment on the aggregate level would if we, if we, if we would ran, run into a um, huge uh, skills mismatch so that in the end we can uh, put labor, supply and labor uh, demand uh, together, and at the moment I don't see uh, that this is happening on such a large scale. So that being said, I uh, nevertheless uh, think it is very useful to uh, do this kind of exercise that Carl has done in the past and to look at specific occupations, uh, to look at specific sectors, and to look at the impact that AI could have on those occupations and those sectors. Uh, what is maybe different uh, or what distinguishes AI from other technologies in the past or some other technologies is that uh, it is a general purpose uh, technology. So the potential is there that uh, it will have an effect on many different occupations, many different enterprises. It may disrupt many sectors at the same time. Uh, so what I think is going to happen is that we will see that there will be a reshuffling of activities uh, of tasks that will be done by humans and that will be done by, uh, by mach machines. Um, and so the, the work that, that Carl has done in the past, this estimation of how much can be automated is quite useful because it gives you an indication of the overall churn that we can see on the labor market. Um, 
again, but I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean, to have an indication about the churn, you know, opens possibilities for, for skills policies, uh, to think about transitions, um, and so on. So there is, it's important for policymakers to have a look at that, uh, but I wouldn't worry about the aggregate unemployment. Uh, on the quality of jobs, there I would be uh, a bit more concerned, and I would um, uh, actually, uh, you know, support some of the views that, or some concerns that have been raised uh, over the last uh, half hour. Um, so even if you reduce job quality only to uh, wage increases, so higher wages, better job quality, which is a little bit of a, a narrow dimension. I mean, job quality includes job quality includes also job security. Uh, access to, to pensions and so on. So even if you say that, okay, let's look at the impact on, on wages, and even if you see the productivity increases, and even if you say in the long run productivity increases have uh, translated into wage increases, I, I don't think that that is a natural process. So there are social processes behind that. Uh, for example, to start with uh, how um, uh, how elastic is, is capital if you want to include AI as, as uh, under, under uh, capital? So how quickly is AI diffusing through markets? How high is the degree of competition on product and service markets? And there are some indications that actually competition is not as high as we want it to be. Uh, there is indication that uh, several companies that are using AI uh, uh, heavily at the moment are uh, extracting rents. Uh, so there is a question of competition policies if you want productivity increases to, to be shared. Uh, another point, I think Carl made it first, and I would also agree with that, there is also a risk of a polarization of jobs. If we have this reshuffling of tasks, and uh, you know, it can, it, it's not clear that this is going to, to, to mean that inequality is going, to down, going down to that, the productivity increases can very well uh, be accumulated in certain jobs. Um, and we could very well end up in a society where you have some people that have very well paid jobs at Google and uh, many others that deliver pizza and enter data in, uh, uh, in computer systems. And the third point why I would also be more worried about job quality is, is, is uh, what was just said before, so I'll keep that very brief so we have more time for a discussion. This is. Uh, are you using the AI to increase the productivity of, of the output or are you using AI as a surveillance technique? Uh, are you using AI to shift the power balance uh, of the labor market? Maybe you use the AI, if I think about these labor platforms, also to reduce the bargaining power of workers. And um, I, I think it's through these social processes that productivity increases are widely shared. And um, so that is not something that would happen uh, automatically uh, in my view. And I think that's uh, where we probably have to think about which kind of actions uh, policymakers uh, may want to take. Um, I think I'll stop here and uh, so that we have the rest of the time for uh, the Q&A. Thank you very much, Sanya, for these very insightful comments. That, that they're very useful. Uh, I would like to open up the discussion with, with our audience. But before I do that, Carl, do you have any quick reactions to what you heard, I think, uh, on any of the issues? Or would you like to take questions with, uh, with our audience as well? Or? Okay, very good. Let's do that then. Uh, so let's uh, questions. If we can collect two or three questions, if that's okay with you, and then we'll come back to the panel. Okay, let's start with the gentleman here in the middle. 
I see a very uh, hand at the very end there. Yeah. Policy planning staff, uh, Foreign Ministry of Belgium, Bertrand de Cronje. Thank you very much for outstanding presentation. Very interesting, very informative. My question is, the message generally is, well, this is more more of what we have seen before. But I have, a, I would like to emphasize the speed at which the change is taking place, and also the danger that we get into a digital divide between those who master algorithms who master artificial intelligence and are on top of the issue and the great number of people who probably do not have the capacity to be likewise you know, able to really understand and master what is going on. And that is qualitative argument that perhaps the um, intervention of artificial intelligence will do more than just you know, induce the labor force to increase its skills. Is it not going to create a kind of divide between people who master it and the mass of people who don't. Okay. Uh, there was a hand at the very end here. Oh, yeah, yeah, please. And then who else? Thank you. Yeah, then two questions here. Okay. Thank you. General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. Um, I would like to react to Mr. Atkinson's uh, position or, or presentation uh, and also support what uh, Mrs. Anna uh, from TUAC said. Um, perhaps with a little bit more life in it. Um, the first feeling I had was um, that economists might be slightly split from real society. And I think that's a problem for economists and it's a problem for real uh, society. Um, I wish it would be different and I think Bruegel is trying to bridge that gap. The second thing I would like to say is your position, because it is a position, it's an hypothesis, is that we shouldn't worry about the quantity of jobs that it will be all fine and you shouldn't worry about that. Are you sure? I'm not. I'm, I must say I've listened to many people, but I'm not sure. And I think it's, uh, it sounds not to be sure. Because if we are not sure, we can properly prepare the future uh, for the people who will be uh, impacted. Then uh, another reaction. You said, oh, well, we will always have things to buy and uh, workers make 50,000 euro a year. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is not the case. <laughs> People are very, very happy if they make 30,000 euros a year. Um, and, and the idea that we should plan a future to buy and buy and buy is not exactly in line what we would like the future to, to be in terms of uh, our planet, in terms of environment, in terms of whatever we would like our society to be. So, um, that are more my comments than questions, but you had the uh, advantage, I, I would say, to uh, raise some feelings in, in myself. Thanks.
David, can you can you hear me? Yeah. So I represent the Global Shapers Committee, which is part of the World Economic Forum. Uh, and I represent a generation of young people who is concerned about the gig economy, because many of us work in the gig economy. And this is a subject, I think, which hasn't been touched um, uh, maybe even at all, I think, in this, in this panel discussion. And my question related to the gig economy is, do you think there will, there will be a need for a new social contract between uh, freelancers and uh, companies like Uber or, or Deliveroo who employed them, or even bigger tech giants who always employ contractors for various roles? So Thank is there a need for a new social contract? Thank, Thank you very much. Just one more question, come back to the panel. My name is Kuni Lewis, Chief Economist, DNP Paribas Fortis. Now, you referred, uh, no, just a second, sorry. Uh, you referred to the English polls in uh, the 18th century. Now, in the English polls, uh, as I understand it, you see that the uh, normal worker, he didn't see an increase in wage. The bourgeoisie, they had an increase in wage, but because they saved more, they increased their savings, and after, let's say, 50, 60 years, 1820, 1830, you saw productivity boom, and so everything uh, came good, and, and the poor workers as well earned uh, a decent uh, wage as well. What is happening now is that we have again an English pause from 1980 on. We see as well that inequality is growing again. But what we don't see, I think, is that we uh, see investments go up like we saw probably in the 18th century. So there are more savings for the rich people, but they don't invest as they did in the 18th century. And so where is the productivity increase going to come from? That is more a question. Okay, let's uh, go back to the panel. And if I may, I take a question from the back also, Robert, on the, some of the, um, the data you put, the first slide you put on, where you saw the productivity changes in Europe at, at the rate of almost doubling in every 15 years. I mean, if you were to take considerations that have to do with sustainability, sustainability environment, is this a rate of growth that we, uh, we should see or can see at all? But I'll leave you, I'll, I'll come back to uh, the panelists. Uh, why don't you start first? Yeah, sure, just to clarify, by the way, I wasn't saying what the wages are in Europe. I don't know what the wages are in Europe. I was saying what the wages are in the U.S. And there's the median wage in the U.S. is $60,000 a year. And I can guarantee pretty much that everybody who makes less than $60,000 a year in the U.S. wants to make more money. And the only way to make that happen is for higher productivity. The only way to make that happen is through automation and these technologies. So if you want to be on the side of the working class, you need to be on the side of automation. With regard to the environment, I, I have a really simple answer for how we should save the planet. Let's just make sure those Indians don't ever get any more income because there's a billion one of them, or way more than us in the America and Europe. And we should just tell them, I'm sorry, we can't afford to have you become middle-class people in India or China because the planet can't handle it. Now, obviously, I'm being facetious because the point is it doesn't matter. We could, we could keep the incomes in America and Europe the same, just have an income freeze. It would do nothing to sell climate change. There's really only one answer to climate change, and it's not immiserating the people in India or keeping ourselves poor. Uh, or not buying things. The only answer to climate change is technological innovation. You have to figure out a way to produce mass quantities of energy with zero carbon, which is a big project that we're involved in at, at ITIF. But to somehow think that we can solve climate change by, you know, not buying things is, I really, frankly, it's just delusional. It's delusional. The only way to solve climate is to figure out a way to get rid of carbon fuels 
and to substitute in with clean energy, which I think we can do. Uh, things like solar, biofuels, nuclear, wind, yep. batteries, all that stuff. So um, that's why I'm not worried. And one last thing, look at France, okay? How did that work out for Macron? Um, wanted to raise the gas tax by, a, you know, not a lot. And the average French worker said, no way, because I'm not paying more money. If we raise incomes through productivity, it's gonna make it a lot easier to put in place a carbon tax. It's gonna make it a lot easier to have big public investments like the Green New Deal uh, to really solve climate. So I, I actually think the best way to make this easier is actually with a faster growing economy. Okay, Anna, would you like to come in to the question about uh, speed and AI masters realization versus the ones that do not know what, how to operate an AI. I think that's a big issue. I think one of the key solutions here is to ensure that there is explainability of AI, um, which is not there yet. That does not mean that everybody needs to understand the code, but everybody needs to understand the purpose of any AI technology that's being introduced and to know what for and how it affects that person. I think that would already help, but then of course, in terms of speed in AI masters, I think it certainly goes quicker than other technological revolutions before. We can see that on lots of, with lots of numbers, that's clear. And I think there is also a clear issue of market concentration, both in terms of the firms that are controlling a little bit this environment, in terms of R&D investments, in terms of markups, but also in terms of and that we clearly know it's fairly simple geography. It's fairly concentrated. So here you will have, we will already see the digital divides on many different dimensions, I would say, in terms of Bernadette's remarks in regards to job quality versus quantity. I also agree to the fact that one should not measure um, automation with unemployment predictions. And, uh, and unemployment numbers. It is about job security, it is about job uh, wage levels and so on and so forth, a job tenure, and not just about, oh, everybody is working, so everything is fine, because a lot of people, as we know now, are working, for example, in the gig economy, instead of in a regular job, they do not show up in the unemployment statistics, doesn't mean that they are happy in life and that they can afford to buy all the goods that they want to. And I mean, related to that, we can also, we see studies from the OECD coming out of the shrinking middle class, where we have less and less people in the middle class. They are moving towards lower income class wage levels, despite having higher skills levels than their parents. And you can see that with every generation that is less and less in the middle class, or at least in the upper and middle level of the middle class. So these are issues that are triggered as well by automation and by automation again i don't mean job displacement i mean automation in terms of a change in economic structures production and service delivery and then finally on the gig economy i mean this is something that i can talk about all afternoon <laughs> and this is another and i want this is another topic but i think that yes you could certainly argue that we need a new social contract but at the same time, I think some of the issues with the gig economy can be resolved without it. Because there are, as you might know, there are misqualifications on some of the workers. Some of the workers are working full time for a certain platform provider, especially in the on-demand platform economy, where there are calls for employment testing that you can do and then claim a contract. There are issues with wage theft from the precise use of AI systems on the apps where 
you take up a job, the app all of a sudden takes it away from you. There are no mechanisms of control. There are no mechanisms of rebuttal for the worker it's himself or herself. And all of this can certainly be somehow more regulated in terms of demanding more transparency from the platform companies to release their workers' data to clarify what the companies need to, what the companies need to pay for even if they are not being considered the employer they still need to pay a bit more in terms of for safety for security in certain physical platform work so there are there is a lot of thinking as you know going around these kind of issues and in Europe trade unions cannot bargain for platform workers because they are considered as self-employed workers so those people are left a bit alone and trying to self-organize and there are a lot of trade unions right now coming in trying to help somehow but not as an official representative and there is a question about the European competition law that might be need, need to be put on the table right now. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Carl? Um, so with regard to the question of whether the speed this time is different, well if it is we're not seeing it in the productivity statistics that uh, Rob mentioned. Uh, I think there may be reasons to believe that it's going to pick up, and hopefully it will. Uh, but at the same time, I think the same barriers that you know, have existed to technology adoption all throughout history still exist. You still have to deal with organizations and people. You still need to retrain. You still need complementary investment. You have legislation to deal with, even if Google Translate becomes perfect tomorrow. Uh, you still need certain documents to be certified by a translator, and unless we certify Google Translate, it's not going to be, uh, those jobs are not going to be replaced. So we need to also take factor in that there are all sorts of organizational uh, um, issues and social, uh, social issues um, that we need to deal with when it comes to automation as well. And for that t uh, reason, I don't think that the acceleration is going to be that significant relative to the past. Um, and that also takes me to the question, uh, are we sure that there are going to be enough jobs uh, in the future? Uh, and obviously there is no way of uh, being sure, but I think if we want to argue that this time is different, we should at least be able to point out why it's different. We've been having this debate for 200 years, uh, and I've struggled to combine a single argument for why this time should be different that didn't feature in the debate in the 60s uh, or 30s. And, and when we look at the data, we don't see anything that suggests that this time um, is different. And go to, to go back to the earlier point, uh, because uh, automation uh, doesn't happen overnight, as Rob showed in his slide on the elevator operators, for example, uh, if we see signs that this time actually turn out to be different, we do have some time to plan, uh, which I think would be uh, is somewhat reassuring. Um, with regard to the gig economy, so I think it's quite different in different countries. So if we uh, look at Uber drivers in London, for example, uh, nearly all of them had jobs before they joined Uber, and uh, nearly all of them joined uh, Uber to take advantage of the flexibility the platform offers. If we look at Uber drivers in Paris, uh, quite a significant share of them were unemployed before joining Uber, and uh, quite a few of them were not very happy with the deal. Uh, and I think what is hard for policy is that what can be the best job for me can be the worst job for you. Some people treasure uh, flexibility, uh, some people would want to have a stable job. And I think the best way of making sure 
that uh, uh, people have a choice is to have a fluid, booming labor market where people don't have to take gig economy jobs um, out of necessity. Okay, and Daniel, do you have any comments on what on the questions? Um, yeah, so such an eloquent panel is always difficult as the last one to add more value, but maybe I pick a few points uh, on the on the speed of of uh, of innovation. I would very much agree with what Carl said. We we have seen that. Uh, in the past, uh, maybe one thing to keep in mind also is that we are living in a more and more complex world, right? We have, we live in huge amounts, we have huge amounts of data. Uh, if you take a decision today in a sp specific uh, country, you may be affected from a virus that starts in China. You know, those were things that were not so pervasive a hundred years ago. So what I want to say with that is uh, we need fast and quick technologies also to cope with these challenges in a, in a more complex world. So I, for my part, don't see a big difference to, to the past. Uh, on, the, on the gig economy, uh, even though here I definitely do not agree with everybody here at the ILO, but on the gig economy I have two comments. First, uh, it's still very, very small. So we still talk about, depending on the country, the different estimates are we talk about one to five percent of the labor force. It has been growing, but it's really, you know, between 99, 95, 99% of the labor force are not in the gig economy, even though if you look at some of the reports, you think everybody is. And uh, also several of the issues that uh, come up in, in the gig economy, if you look at Uber and so on, uh, I think they, they need to be looked at, but they are also not new things, right? The, dis the distinction between who is an employee and who is an employer is, this discussion has been around for tax purposes, for labor market purposes for, for, for decades. And here we, we need to be sure that the regulations that exist are being enforced. And if, you know, in the example of Uber, I don't wanna point to Uber per se, but there was, I mean, the AB5 in California, there was this discussion about that, but if AI is basically used to get around regulation that exists for employees, if that just helps me to, to suddenly claim um, my employees are not employees anymore, but they're independent contract, uh, 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 contractors, uh, that's the moment where the question comes up, is AI actually uh, uh, improving the productivity of society? Is it increasing the well-being of society or is it just a way of uh, you know shifting the um, the power structure uh, at on the, at the labor market. Yes, of course. Yes, thank you, Daniel. Thanks very much, uh, Rob. So I just I, I agree with Carl on that. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of Uber drivers. I love Uber, and uh, it's really great. And I talked to a lot of them, and you know, really interesting story. That one guy I talked to, he's um, he's um, a minister, and it's a, in the U.S. People have their churches. They, entrepreneurial economy. So this entrepreneur decided to create a church and uh, it's not big enough yet. So he needs to drive uh, 20 hours a week. Uh, another guy, he drives only at the holidays because he has, he doesn't have, he's one of these people who doesn't make that much money and he wants really nice presents for his kids. So he drives at the holidays. Uh, another woman who's getting her PhD at Harvard and just didn't want to be sitting in a room all day. So she drives like three hours a day and picks up a little extra money. And I think it would be a big mistake to get rid of that flexibility. Uh, if you look at what happened in California, they tried to, they passed a law that said if you have sort of this level of control or whatever, so what Uber did is fine. We, we will have less control 
And the result is probably going to be less money for the Uber drivers because they're going to be setting their own fares. There's going to be more competition. There'll be this race to the bottom. So I'm not sure it's uh, – and, and the other part of that, too, which I, I think is a problem with classifying Uber drivers as, as workers, is that every Uber – not every – majority of Uber drivers I talk to, they're driving also for Lyft. Some of them are taxi drivers and Uber drivers. Who really is their employer then? I mean, is it only when you're doing one or the other? The last point is, is this point – uh, to your question, sir, um, if you look at the recent Bureau of Labor Statistics study in the monthly labor review, they did a study on the change in contingent work, which is, as you've talked about, it's not just the gig, but it's contract workers or short-term workers and the like. And what they found was actually there's been a slight decline in the share of that over the last 20 years. So uh, uh, it's not something that's really – you might have a little difference here and there, maybe a few more gigs and a few less contractors. And, and clearly, I, I agree with Anna on your point that, uh, you know, Companies who are scamming this, but really they should have a full-time, long-term employment contract, and they're scamming it for contracts. We shouldn't. There are existing laws in the U.S. that makes that illegal. We shouldn't be enforcing those. Um, but I don't. I, I don't worry that we're going to be gigged out of the world. I mean, there'll be still lots and lots of permanent jobs. Okay. Thank you. We'll have a quick one round. If there's any questions coming across, there's one question here. Okay. I have. Uh, I have four questions very quickly, though. The lady here in the middle. I'm Antonia Simmons, and I'm actually working a little bit around uh, this foreign ministry of foreign affairs. I just have uh, a question because when I see all the time productivity, productivity, it's something measured in amount of money. But on the other on the other side, I hear also questions of well-being, which are not as much taken into account. When I hear people, oh, I'm driving during the holidays uh, to have money for my children, so I don't have time for my children. I mean, there is a, I mean a balance to make. You cannot have the same quality of life. And what if, for example, all these people working for with artificial intelligence all decide that they want to live in a place with a good quality of life, they all move to Sweden, Norway, whatever, and they just send it online, whatever you need on the other side. So um, what would there the balance of quality of life? Because there is not no necessity in an uh, artificial intelligent world to sit at the place where you work. You can sit thousands of kilometers away from it. The digital side, yeah. That's yes, exactly. Okay. So what do you do? Uh, there was a lady at the back, did I see correctly? Yes, at the back there was a lady here, and then there's a question at the front of who there is. Oh, and then the gentleman, okay. And that's the <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Christine Hatim. I'm professor in Aix-Marseille. I have a quick question for Mr. Rob Atkinson concerning your figure from the World Bank study. You showed that the change in productivity is nearly 2% for Korea or over 1.5% for Ireland and only 0.5 for Switzerland, Austria, France, Spain. So you discussed the problem of Europe and how to yeah, can boost productivity. Can you give some insight why in Ireland and Korea uh, there is such a big uh, increase and change in productivity and not, for instance, in Switzerland or Austria? Thank you. Thank you. This gentleman who's here at the back and then here at the front here. Hello, hi, uh, Pierre Lebert from uh, Alliance European Affairs uh, Office. Uh, there is a democratic candidate in the US, Andrew Yang, that is calling for a UBI, so universal basic income, in order to alleviate uh, inequality produced by AI and automation. And I wanted to, to know what are your thoughts on that and if it's something that uh, you know, um, could be doable or, 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 or that we want uh, in the EU. 
Uh, it's a pity we don't have a Finnish representative here because they could tell us their experience with that. But uh, okay, uh, and just the last question here, and I'll come back to the panel for final thoughts. Yeah, my name is Francesco. I work for BVA Consulting Agency here in Brussels. Um, I'm interested in this polarization uh, that has been discussed. I think in terms of wages, so uh, AI brings uh, benefits to those who are more educated uh, rather than to those who are less educated. Um, so there's a kind of a race between education and technology, uh, mostly where technology uh, takes um, education along with it. Um, at the same time, I see a, a labor market where most of the supply is focused on people uh, with a background in technology and uh, engineering and, and so on and so forth. And my question is more about the future of employment. So where, where is AI taking us to a place where most of us will be forced kind of to study, to be engineers somehow, rather than a future where most of us have a historical, philosophical background or literature and so on. Okay, thank you very much. These are big questions, so I'm going to ask my panelists to be uh, very, very uh, concise, but we're going to start backwards. Uh, Daniel, can we start with you? If you have any comments for the four last questions we've heard? Yes, maybe I just pick uh, one, which is on the last one. Um, I think on the on the higher education versus lower education, I think at least we or I don't know yet if that's really the case that um, the AI is really going to replace mainly low-skilled jobs and, and, and create more high-skilled jobs. I mean, to have a good education is always helpful on the labor market. <laughs> but whether we are moving into what was, you know, this skill-wide technical change so that you get a, skill, uh, a premium for being a high-skilled, if that applies to AI, I think it's still an open question. And on everybody needs to be engineers, I don't think so. I think there will be AI, there will be new jobs, new tasks for engineers, for computer scientists, and so on. But there will be also, there can be many other tasks which are completely unrelated uh, to, uh, uh, to AI in other sectors. Um, and uh, actually those uh, uh, things that you mentioned may actually be the comparative advantage of humans. So I don't think that moving to more uh, jobs that are related uh, to AI automatically means that everybody has to become um, an engineer. And I leave maybe the other um, open question for the other Okay, panel. thank you very much. Anna? Um, very quickly on your question as well, on uh, wages and polarization. I don't think that AI really affected wages as far as much. I think the reason for permanent, already stagnating a wage inequality are different ones that I won't list, I think they're very well known, and I don't think it's the recent technological change. I think it might lead to more wage inequality in the future, but, the, but it's not right now. It's, it's not at present that this is not the case according to a lot of data that we are seeing from the OECD, the IMF, and so on and so forth. What I think we can see is that it's already higher skills are not being as rewarded anymore as they used to be. So while it's good to be educated, it is not a guarantee for a good job and a higher wage. It is not that anymore. So this is, I think, where we need to look in to, politically speaking. And then in regards to STEM, uh, of course, no, not everybody can and will be an engineer, a coder, and so on and so forth, but maybe more people will be that. Also more women should probably be that as well for other reasons. 
But I also think that precisely, I think uh, one of you showed that, uh, has shown that on their slide, it's about where can you create other jobs and other sectors? Can we go into the green economy? Can we go more into the care economy, into other service sector jobs that will be much needed, despite AI being introduced or not, and also look into that and not be too focused on just STEM, but STEM is important, certainly. And then EDI is very difficult a topic. I think it's hard to finance, first of all. Where will it come from if it's really universal? If you keep the universal, then you have to also give UDI literally to everybody. And then it is hard to do. And I think before we go to EDI, we can, we can take a few more steps in between to ensure that people actually work and have wages instead of um, putting, uh, giving UDI to everybody, even if you find the financing for it. But I think it's weird. We're not there yet, and in Finland, obviously, it went a bit wrong. Thank you, Anna. Who else? Uh, so a few things. One, um, with regard to the first question, I have no desire to tell that person uh, who's in my Uber that he's a bad father because he wants a little bit more money for his kids. Uh, that's, that's his decision. It's not mine. Um, I think the reality is most people, most working people in the U.S., you know, if you ask them, they would rather have more money than less time. I think what will happen, though, eventually is if we raise productivity, and, and this is, I think, a, a role that unions really can and should play is insisting that part of that go to time reduction. Uh, I don't think most workers are ready for that uh, in the sense that they just want more money. They want to live. But when we start raising productivity for unions, we, we, if we don't take some of that gain in terms of time, I think we're making a huge mistake. People work too much, uh, in my view. This is why I like Europe so much. Uh, you guys don't work as much. And uh, you know, come to America. I'm working all the time. It's, it's not a good life. Uh, and so I agree with that. Um, with regard to that, I was Question about European productivity differences. I, I, I can't answer that because the answer is it's very complex. Different usage of IT, uh, different skill levels, different regulatory, all these things. There's a report on our website. If you just go to issue, uh, go to regions and click on Europe, you'll see it. It's a report looking at analyzing European productivity growth and IT, and then it looks at a bunch of different countries. But I'm happy to be talking with you afterwards. On the UBI, I, I agree with you. I, I think the biggest problem with UBI, UBI I'm, I'm kind of like with Carl. Like, you know, maybe in some world, maybe unemployment might go up to unacceptable levels, but there's no evidence of that. So I'm happy to worry about that if it starts to emerge. I don't think it will, but maybe it would. And then maybe in that world, you might think about UBI. But I think the biggest problem with UBI is there's so many good studies, again, from the U.S., that the longer a worker is unemployed, the harder it is to get back into the labor force. Uh, your skills atrophy, your attitudes have a problem. And so we want, uh, there's a really great book by my colleague Oren Kasp, just wrote a book in the US called Once and a Future Worker. And, and Oren's point of this is I think a super good one. We need to focus economic policy around the well-being of workers. That, that, that was Oren's point. And we sort of have forgotten that. And, and one of the things that a, a worker's well-being is tied up in is their work. Most Americans get a lot of their identity and, and camaraderie and other values from work. It doesn't mean that work can't be better. But the idea that we could just sit at home and play video games and be satisfied humans, I think, is, a, is, a, is a misleading. Um, and the last thing I'll just say is, is on, on, on the question of wage distribution. The last technological wave was really, in some ways, it was, it was a little bit of a hollowing out of the middle wages. So you had high growth in knowledge, higher wage, and higher growth in low wage, which I think is quite problematic. I think, and, and one of the things we did, we looked at Carl's data and then we used our own assessment of all the 700 occupations in the US DLF. 
and then what we did is we just did a correlation coefficient between your ranking and wage levels uh, and our ranking and wage levels. They're essentially exactly the same, which is about negative 0.6. So uh, the relation, so much higher risk of automating low wage jobs going forward um, than high automating middle and, and higher wage jobs. And then you can say, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And it's kind of, yes, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because why do we want people working in low-wage jobs? Well, low-wage jobs are, are frankly not very good. They don't pay very much. The whole point of working is to make money, enough money and to have a satisfying work life. And low-wage jobs often you don't get either of those. So I'm super excited that we could automate a lot of bad jobs in the U.S. economy. I, what I would worry about though is can we make sure that those workers can easily move into something that's more remunerative, more satisfying, more meaningful. But I'm like, hey, if we get rid of a lot of low-wage jobs, that by definition means workers are going to be moving in, some workers in, into middle wage and higher wage. Thank you very much, Rob. Carl, last word. Uh, on the question of whether we focus too much on productivity and not sufficiently on well-being, I think this also goes to one of the first comments, which was, was whether economists are completely detached from the rest of society. And my answer to that would be, I don't go to the dentist and ask for a haircut. Uh, economists tend to focus on the productive system. I don't know a single economist who thinks that the economy is you know, everything there is to life. Uh, but we do know that there is a pretty strong correlation between income and well-being, which leads us to think that income is something worth focusing on. And if you go and speak to people in social sciences, they're actually quite unhappy because a lot of economists are infringing on their discipline, uh, they feel. At the same time, you see a lot of calls from people that economists uh, are doing too little social science. I'm not sure that we are the best placed people to do social science. I'm not sure whether that is desirable. Uh, but I do note that there is a fairly significant disconnect between the public perception of what economists do and think and what's actually going on inside departments across universities. Okay, well in defense of economists, thank you for that. <laughs> well okay, that's, uh, that's wonderful. I'm afraid we've run over, I apologize for that. Well, thank you all for taking the time to come. This is a fascinating discussion and I'm sure it's not the last of it. I will uh, make a point of inviting you back to, to, to tell us more about all these things. But for the moment, thank you very much for your, uh, your comments, your contributions, and uh, please join me in, in, uh, in thanking our panelists. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, even from afar.